Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 10. The Drabblecast is a weekly podcast featuring strange stories by strange authors for strange listeners such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Today's episode is a little longer than the usual, so I want to get straight to it. Just a quick reminder to send in your votes for the Super Animal Deathmatch competition, described in episode 8. Actually, did have a pretty good amount of votes come in this week, so thanks for that. And I'll tell you, it's a pretty close race right now, but Death Mole is still ahead by a little bit. Probably going to let this competition run for another two weeks. A few people have told me they're having some problems downloading the Drabblecast on their iTunes. I'm not sure what this problem is, but I know you can fix it by going to the original website, http colon slash slash web.mac.com slash Norm Sherman and just pushing subscribe again. It'll start a new Drabblecast feature on your iTunes that won't have any issues. Today's story is called A Little Black Death by Lance Arthur. Lance lives in San Francisco and has some pretty funny and interesting blog material at both LanceArthur.com and GlassDog.com. You should check it out. He also actually has a book, which I think is the first for Drabblecast authors here, um, that you can pick up at LanceArthur.com. If you're a fan of today's story, it's actually included in this book. So, there you go. Without further ado, A Little Black Death by Lance Arthur. Everyone grew up with a scary family in their neighborhood. I suppose nowadays that definition might include the people who voided their condo agreement by painting their garage door in an unacceptable color. On the other end of the spectrum, there's probably the house that always has those annoying drive-by shootings. But when I was a kid, you had to go quite a bit out of the everyday to be the scary family. And the winner on my block, hands down, was the abnormal Adamses known as the Jenkins family. The Jenkins family was nothing if not colorful, and I mean colorful in the same way that scabs and bruises are. The mom was skeletal, a haggard woman in a bad mood as if someone had just stabbed her in the hip with a fondue fork. We never saw Mr. Jenkins. Rumor had it that he was buried in the basement. The elder boy of the family had, as you might expect, an El Camino on cement blocks in the driveway. His name was Randy, and he had that sort of whip-snap body as if he were constructed of beef jerky. We all wanted to be like Randy. The younger brother was Greg. He would come out and play with the rest of us on occasion. We would pretend to be characters from Star Trek or the Wild Wild West. I was never Kirk or James West. I was always Bones or Artemis Gordon. Fat, sad, and lonely. Even then, I felt destined to be the co-star of my own life. But not Greg. Greg Jenkins was insane. Greg had two hobbies. One was marbles. He was very good at marbles. Almost a marble shark. He carried them in a purple velvet sack with yellow writing on the side that said Crown Royal. He'd tie its satin strands around the belt loop of his tough skins, and those marbles would hang like a second set of testicles off his hip, clacking and swinging and announcing his prepubescent manhood. His second hobby was why he was insane, and what led to the scariest moment of my young life. Greg Jenkins collected Black Widow spiders. He kept them in jars in his garage, row after row of mayonnaise jars, 
each one containing a small, shiny blob of instant death. I hated spiders. There was nothing about spiders that I did not hate, and like anything hated with passion, I was fascinated and drawn to them. I wanted to look at them and figure out what made them so disgusting, and Black Widows added another element altogether to my deep-seated and somewhat illogical fear of things I can step on pretty easily. Black Widows were beautiful, and their bite could kill you. Greg enjoyed showing off his collection. He would reach out with an eager, excited hand and take up a jar, the lid poked through with a screwdriver, the interior lined with a ragged, irrational nest of sticky webbing, and there, off to the side, hidden until you looked, would be the glistening teardrop of doom. It would move, of course, because he'd make it. The inky death bug would scramble through the tangle and pause, frozen, silent, then jerk again and fly across her white tomb, knowing there was no meal waiting. It was simply her world shaking again, moving for no reason, annoying her into drooling poison across her silk. He would thrust the jar at me, sometimes even open the lid and pull the cotton candy webbing apart, and there was the spider, there ready to jump into my eye and pierce it, sinking murder inside my head and sucking out the milk and pus. I would shriek like a little girl and piss my pants with fear and scramble to reclaim my huffy and get the hell away from the maniac kid and his collection. The next day I'd be back, the afternoon sun burning on the back of my neck, nightmares of glistening fat bodies in midnight armor, fangs gently flexing as silver threads emerged from the thing's bulbous ass, soaked with glue and toxin. Greg would feign disinterest. No, he didn't want to look at them. Couldn't we feed them or something? I'd ask. A fly or something? And he'd wrinkle his evil brow and sneer and shrug. Yeah, whatever. My mistake was to ask one question too many. Where do you get them? His smile should have warned me. The shivers that sent up my spine I attributed to the dozens of dancing terrors in my peripheral vision. The shining ghosts arrayed in their jars, balanced on wooden shelves that would give at any moment, spilling the hundreds of venomous creatures all over my body. I hadn't made that connection. That evil lived inside this child, and now it leached out like an ink stain and spread dark across me. Do you want to help me get some? Every fiber of my physical being, every mote of intellect in my head, the bright frozen sheath of my spirit, they all screamed in disharmony at that moment. And my mouth said, Yes! Because I was an eight-year-old kid, and there was no way I was going to be labeled chicken, even if certain death awaited. It was certain that the Jenkins house was a wreck, but it was more pathetic than frightening. The haunted palace was another edifice that stood on a hill above empty acres of dry dirt that had once been a cotton farm. Bakersfield was and is farm country, a pocket of green growth at the far southern lip of California's huge San Joaquin Valley. Before the palace was filled up with McMansions sitting on postage stamp plots, and even before the measured rows of tract houses constructed for G.I. Bill families out of drywall popped up like weeds, the place was dotted with farms and their farming families living in huge Victorian houses in the center of their fields. Near our neighborhood, one such home had somehow survived the abandonment of land in favor of suburbia. 
it was now a wreck, a hideous but noble structure nobody ventured into. A cross between some Norman Bates residential nightmare and a beautiful, turreted multi-family selling for millions. The house was dark and silent, hunched on its haunches in wait for some unsuspecting child to wander inside and disappear forever. What better place could there be to locate spiders, just as silent and deadly and filled with menace? The house practically exhaled them across the valley floor, into the garden shoes and rain gutters of happy nuclear families where they waited patiently to bite and kill. Of course, the farmhouse was the black hole of terror, and it was into its musty embrace that Greg led me. The interior was nothing like the exterior. It was much, much worse. Light filtered through the broken walls and missing windows to fall in strong, hard pillars that splashed across the wood floors. The floors themselves creaked like any good haunted house, and everywhere I looked I saw deep shadows, which no doubt hid slavering madmen with rusty saws and serrated knives. Ghosts walked the halls and traversed the stairs, quietly observing intruders until they could be caught alone somewhere, and then the cold fingers of death would wind their throats and pull out screams and souls with glee. How do you catch them? I asked, my voice a mouse squeak under the heavy threat of this place. His eyes gleamed in the filtered light, and his smile was slim and malicious. How do you think? He held up an empty mayonnaise jar to me and showed me his own. Then he stalked off like the crocodile hunter, moving with stealth and surety toward a corner where the wall met the staircase. Threads of the other webs, abandoned and shredded, dragged their touch across my face and exposed arms, finding my flesh as easily as a butcher. He stopped and pointed. This one's easy, he said in a matter-of-fact, serial killer tone. You just reach in and take her. There she was, fat, glistening, motionless in her snarled and knotted web. Black widows do not create symmetrical masterpieces to live in. They don't spin or knit or spiral artistic constructions. They shit out a chaotic, frenzied confusion. She sat at the edge of her trap, as if she were dead. Greg pulled out a flashlight and shone its sputtering illumination across the web, revealing its true size and that she was not exposed at all, but surrounded by her home while she waited for her next victim. The strands looked dim and dull, like cotton that had been stretched too far. Her shadow bulged against the wall and danced in a way that she did not, bouncing and swelling with death. Greg was enjoying this. It was why he collected them. He loved the spiders, probably, but he loved this more, seeing the panic in someone, watching them sweat and pale as the blood sank inside. He reached out and plucked the web as she retreated a little, tentative, until she sensed the size of her prey. Was it something she could suck the fluids from, or was it something that could stomp her out of existence? Her eight legs rested against the threads, and she waited, motionless again, using her remaining senses to discover the intent of this intruder. Greg laughed at her evident stupidity, or perhaps at mine. I was spellbound and frozen and suddenly felt as if spiders were everywhere, that the house was absolute with them, 
their webs were holding these walls together. There were black widows even now crawling across my Chuck Taylors and Sears Husky jeans. Dozens of them. Hundreds. Like Soviet soldiers on May Day in Red Square, marching in tight rows, their millions of legs all in step. The jar slipped in my sweaty palm, and I was snapped back into reality. I did not want to do this. I didn't want to be here, and now, here I was, next to this insane kid, trying to prove I was just as insane as he. She's a big one, he whispered. Just put the jar over her. She'll go inside. Then put on the lid really fast, and you've got one. It's easy. It certainly seemed easy. She wasn't moving at all. She seemed to be waiting for me. I wasn't going to blink. Greg's flashlight was dimming. Her round black body just sat there. I started to reach into the shadow, and my hand was suddenly huge, blocking the light and tearing her web apart. She moved with sudden, frightening speed, and Greg said, too loudly, You have to do it fast! You'll get away! I was fumbling with the round jar in the square space. The web was all over me now, clinging to me and pulling her towards my skin. I couldn't see her. Then, there she was again, charging at my face. I turned the jar's mouth to catch her and keep her from me. It clanked against the wall and my wrists bent. She was gone again, and then there she was on the floor, moving with quick, unsteady gracelessness, sheared from her webbing, exposed and glistening and trying to escape. I brought the jar down on top of her, imprisoning death in a small glass circle against the filthy floor. Dust rose in a cloud above us, a sparkling fog in this house's malaise. She made tiny tink-tink noises as she met each surface of her cell, testing the walls with her glass legs. She grew more and more agitated in her blindness, feeling the walls closing in and nowhere to crawl up and out. She left a carpet of webbing on the wood as she moved, but she would not calm. Greg watched with the same fascination as I, but he was excited by her incarceration, while I fought my fear and revulsion this creature, feeling her hatred and need for revenge coating me like warm blood. She's mad, he said, grinning. She's going to be hard to capture now. If you'd done it right and got her against the wall, you just had to tilt the jar and she falls inside. What are you going to do now? I had no idea. Why couldn't we just sit there forever and just watch her agony until she died, her little dried husk of a corpse withering in the middle of this glass prison, liquefying from inside? Why did there have to be more to it than this? Why was everything so damn hard? Greg didn't look at me at all. He tapped the glass with his fingernail. Good grief, why are his fingernails so long? And slid the jar a few inches, catching the widow unaware against the edge, maddening her further. I didn't move at all. I had no clues to what to do next. He was shaking the jar now, and her tiny poison-filled body was knocking back and forth. He did this over and over, faster and faster, until she was a racquetball inside the glass walls. Suddenly, he flipped the jar over and held it up, planting the dying flashlight against the base to illuminate the stunned creature inside, helplessly staggering about like a drunken baby, trying to find purchase against the smooth surface. Got her, he announced with triumph. My mouth was agape. I looked inside the prison as he wound the lid on and admired his latest prize, another black widow to add to his death menagerie. I felt sick and astonished and dismal, 
impotent and thrilled in equal measure. He admired her for a few seconds, and then went to get another from somewhere. But I was done. I was sick with fear and covered in sweat and dust and the smell of horror. The house felt like a broken-armed hug, like it was embracing me in shreds and slivers, shoving splinters under my skin. The light was brown and feral, and everywhere I looked I saw ghosts and demons, dead children grabbing at me from the shadows, and thick nests of shiny black bodies scrambling and swarming and dripping with venom. I never went back to that house. It was demolished some years later, and replaced by a strip mall. Where that hive of death sat, people now steer their SUVs through a Wendy's drive through picking up clean paper bags filled with a different kind of death, a slower and much more devious death than the Black Widow provides. I didn't see it torn apart, rusty nails flying into the skin of its killers, broken timbers rendering limbs in a last desperate effort to kill. I'm sure the small, dried bodies of hundreds of deadly spiders are mingled in the tar and asphalt under Long John Silvers. The Jenkins family moved away one day, when no one was paying attention. The house they haunted was occupied by another family, with no interesting hobbies to speak of, and nothing much going on at all. I continued exploring my fear of those small, shiny, jet-black drops of death when I found them. I remember once getting out of our swimming pool and reaching my slick arm inside a shed to turn the pool skimmer on. My fingers were pruned, and probably my skin was not as sensitive as it might have otherwise been. I felt something creep along my arm, but it didn't really register that anything unusual was going on. As I pulled my arm back into the sunlight, something was on my hand, right in the little notch of flesh at the base of the thumb. Some little thing, shiny and black, and scrambling about. I screamed, and my whole body convulsed, spasming with sudden and primeval dread. I flailed to free myself of that tiny drop of black looking like a rag doll in the summer heat, my limbs and joints suddenly liquid. Moments later, my heart beating loud enough to hear a block away, I began to search for the black widow spider that had managed to at last touch me, but I couldn't find it. I began to think it was somewhere else on me, like an ink stain or some sticky ball that moves from skin surface to skin surface, and no matter how hard you shake and flick and blow at it, it will not leave. Sometimes, I think it's still on me, somewhere, waiting. Well, that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. Thinking back, I can't seem to recall having a token, scary, weird, creepy family in my neighborhood growing up. That leads me to question if maybe my family was that one. Ugh. Anyways, tune in next week for episode 11. Until then, check out normsherman.com for some sweet tunes, and send your stories in to goatkeeper at hotmail.com. If you haven't noticed yet, there's a comment section now included next to each story, so feel free to post your reaction to stories. Happy 10th episode, people. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. 
reminding you to never let your kids play with that certain family in the neighborhood. No, the black family's nice. I'm talking about the one that collects spiders.